All right, glad to have you here. And uh, look at your uh, that little half sheet handout that kind of represents this. I wanted to orientate you to Advent a little bit. Uh, some of you may celebrate this, or be familiar with it. For some of you, it may be brand new. Uh, just had a dad, a young dad in our church, uh, come up to me just this morning. Hey, we got all the stuff. We're ready to go. And he was so excited and looking forward to it. So if you've never been introduced uh, to Advent, uh, I have it up here. Advent candles can shine the light on the Christ of Christmas. And I, there's many ways you can, there's many Advent wreaths or Advent candle setups that you can get. But if you've got kids, I'd really encourage you to check this out. And if you need more help with it or suggestions or ideas, uh, we've succeeded and failed in, in probably all the ways that you will face. And so we can help you with that. And it's not just for kids, though. Uh, it's for adults. It's for me. It's, it's a great time of year for me to remember why uh, we celebrate celebrate Christ. And the way you figure out Advent or the four Sundays, it's basically four Sundays prior to Christmas. So you figure out when Christmas is, and then you count back and find the fourth Sunday before Christmas. And then Advent celebrated on the fourth Sunday, the third Sunday, the second, the first, and then Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, you light the Christ candle, which is here in the center. So these three, four or five candles represent that. Now, this year is like the, uh, the, the, uh, the dream Advent calendar, because you know your calendar is always changing. And so this year, we actually have all four Sundays of Advent and Christmas lands on a Sunday. But because our class only meets these three Sundays, uh, we're behind because the fourth Sunday was last week, November 27th. And uh, then Chris, the last Sunday will be the Sunday of December the 25th. So we're, uh, we're just going to do it differently. And if you're like my family, uh, we still haven't done the first week of Advent. That's just the craziness of this time of year. But having something like this helps you stay accountable and know, hey, you know what? We're letting our schedule dictate instead of our priorities. Now, it's a, this is a tradition. This isn't rooted in the Bible. But uh, many years back, I wanted to take this and really root it in the Christmas story. And so uh, these five candles, uh, our family, we kind of remember them as the promise candle, the preparation candle, the proclamation candle, the participation candle, and the presence candle. And the reason of that is it takes you through the story, the Christmas story, as it's revealed really in the Bible. If you uh, choose to remember Advent or celebrate Advent uh, this way, you will always be reviewing and bringing the story of Christmas before your kids. Now, the promise candle is because Christmas begins not in the New Testament, but where? In the Old Testament, with the promises of the prophets, the coming of the Christ. In fact, when you pick up the Christmas stories in Luke and Matthew, uh, the beginning Gospels of Luke, they're all quoting what? The Old Testament promises. And so uh, the promise candle that we'll light today reminds us that Old Testament people were trusting in the prophetic promises. And the two classic people that picture that is Simeon and Anna. And it's not by, it's not by accident that both of, these are, are, both of these individuals are said to be very, very old. Why? Because they're representing the Old Testament promises. They represent literally by their age. We have been waiting a very long time, but they were waiting with faith and trust in those promises. Wow. Uh, don't get me going because Simeon and Anna, man, there are powerful principles in there. So you can tell your kids or tell yourself, your spouse, your family about that. The preparation candle is this. People that really trust those promises of His coming are going to get prepared. Trusting people are prepared people. And that's what you find in Zechariah and Elizabeth, Mary and Joseph. Were they perfect in their preparation? No. Zechariah got, you know, he doubted God and had to, and God uh, uh, prevented him from speaking to discipline him for that. And Mary and Joseph, these weren't perfect people. They were people like us. But they were a prepared people. Why? Because they trusted in those promises. So you, you have the promise candle, the preparation candle. 
Now, a prepared people proclaim the good news that he's coming. And so the story of Christmas moves into the angels and shepherds who both proclaim his good news. So it starts with the promises of his coming. And those that trust in those promises begin to prepare their lives because he could come at any moment. Simeon and Anna didn't know when, he, when those promises were going to be fulfilled, but they were trusting God that they would be fulfilled, and they hung out in the most likely place they would be fulfilled, in the temple. Both of those individuals were faithful in worshiping the Lord in the place that he designated. Well, when you're, uh, when you're prepared for his coming and know about his coming, you proclaim it. And that, that is no better uh, illustrated than in the shepherds. Man, we can't keep this good news to ourselves. And so what's beautiful about this third week of Advent, if you celebrate it this way, the proclamation candle reminds us uh, at this Christmas time that we should be thinking of others and sharing the good news. Uh, for us here at our church, the application is invite them to the uh, Christmas uh, uh, the Christmas messages, the fear not. All that material is at the back of the church. You can pick that up and proclaim the good news, invite people to worship. Now, when you proclaim the good news, you should also be participating in it. And probably my favorite part of the Christmas story is the wise men who come from afar, who realign their priorities, who demonstrate their values and their convictions by coming to worship the newborn king. And so participation, getting involved in worship, not just at Christmas, which is a temptation for many, not you guys, but temptation for many, but all year round. And then finally, you come to the fifth candle, which is in the center, and it re represents the presence candle. Jesus Christ is present. That's the whole idea of Advent. Advent means coming or appearing. Uh, it means God with us, Emmanuel. And so Christmas is all about His presence and fulfilling His purposes. And so this Sunday, we're going to go ahead and we're a time, but we're going to... We're, we're okay with that. Are you okay with that? All right. I'm okay. And even if you're not, we're, we just did it. Okay. So we're looking today at the promises. Now you say, well, what's this all have to do with the Psalms of Ascent? Well, we're now in the last four Psalms of Ascent. 132, 131, 133, and 134. And as I looked at these, I was like, wow, this is really cool. We're going to be in Advent. And these psalms really tell the story of Advent like I just explained to you. Now, you do have to flip-flop 132 and 131, but you're going to see today that 132 is all about His sovereignty, and it's about the promises of the coming of the Son of David. And next week, we're going to look at Psalm 131, and it's all about humility and the preparation of a humble heart. And David certainly had that humble heart. He was a man after God's own heart. Then we're going to look at Psalm 133, and that goes with the proclamation. That's, that psalm is all about unity. And in this election year, this post-election life, this new normal, there's nothing that proclaims the gospel more than the unity of his people that rises above politics, that rises above preferences, that rises above uh, disappointments, and expectations. And then finally, the whole Psalms of Ascent that we've been studying is all about the coming of Christ. We're talking about God's people dwelling in God's presence in His place for all of eternity. So I hope that uh, as we go through this this week, uh, you'll see the relevance. And all of this is coming out of the Old Testament, and yet it points us to the coming of Christ and the real uh, meaning of Christmas. So take a look at your notes. And uh, if you have any other questions about that, we could talk about it. But if you look at your notes, Psalm, uh, okay, thanks, Audrey. Psalm uh, uh, 132 is all about, well, actually, I didn't, I didn't tell you this. Um, turn to Psalm 132 and 131, actually, you just look at them. All these psalms, these last four psalms, are all focused on David, son of David. 
David and his sons and God's promises to David. So look at Psalm 131. If you look at Psalm 131, it is written by David. Okay, so the focus there, here's a psalm written by David. Then look at Psalm 132. It's one of the longest, it's what we're going to study today. It's one of the longest of the Psalms of Ascent, and it mentions David four times. It talks about how David provided a dwelling place for God's presence to be worshipped by his people. It talks about David's sons will forever rule over Israel and all the nations. It talks about David's sons, one of David's sons, will finally rise up and defeat all of Israel's enemies. So it's David, 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 David. And then in Psalm 133, another psalm written by David. And then finally in Psalm 134, I think it's one of the shortest, if not the shortest, of the Psalms of Ascent. They finally get to Jerusalem. They finally make it in their journey to joy to the place they came. And it's all filled in these three verses. Five times David's Lord's name is mentioned. David was a man after God's own heart. And in this last Psalm, Psalm 134, we see his Lord's name mentioned five times. And it's all about worshiping him. Now, what ties all these Psalms together is God made a covenant with David in the Old Testament. You can find that in 2 Samuel 7. In fact, turn there now. 2 Samuel 7. That's where you find this promise to David. And you're not going to understand anything about today's lesson if you don't kind of grab on to this truth that God made specific promises to David. And they're found in Psalm, or I'm sorry, 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7. Seven. So what I want to do is just give you a brief overview because we can't assume that we know about the covenant, God's covenant with David. And I just want to give you an overview and really answer the question, how important are God's covenant promises to David in the Bible? Well, this covenant with David is revealed in 2 Samuel 7. Let's look at verse, uh, let's begin in verse 8. God has come through the person, the prophet of Nathan, and he's making promises to David. So let's look at what that is. Samuel 7 and begin in verse 8. Now, therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts. And here it comes. Here's the covenant that's coming. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you've gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. And now here comes the promises. And I I counted at least 12 different times. God says to David, I will, I will, I will. That's God making promises, all right? So take a look at it. Now here, here comes the first one. I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them anymore. In other words, I'm going to make you king, I'm going to make, or I'm going to make your name great, and I'm going to give Israel a place, and we know that place is Jerusalem, the city of Zion that we've been studying in Psalms. And he says, all the wicked are going to be cut off. Verse 11, even from the day that I commanded judges to be, I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. And he's not talking about a building. He's talking about a lineage, a descendants. I'm going to make a royal legacy for you. You're not only going to be king, but your sons are going to be a dynasty a legacy of kings. Look at verse 12. Days are complete and you lie down with your fathers. I'm going to raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you. And there it comes again. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. Now he's referring to the temple. And he's saying, look, your son's going to build the temple. You'd like to build the temple for me, but it's not going to be you, David. It's going to be your son, Solomon. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 
I will be a father. Here's another promise of the covenant. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But, so what he's saying there is, look, we're going to have a father-son relationship. And when you sin against me, when you get disobedient, I'm going to do what every good parent does. And what do you do? You discipline your kids. Well, it's one thing to be disciplined by a parent. It's another thing to be disciplined when God Almighty is your father. Okay, And he says, look, I'm going to discipline you. But look at verse 15, parents. This is especially good for you to remember, for all of us to remember. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him. I'm going to discipline him out of love. And as I took, and and I'm not going to depart from him. I'm not going to remove the kingdom from him. Look at verse 15. As I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. In other words, Saul disobeyed me and I ripped the kingdom from him. David, I'm making a promise to you that no matter how sinful you or your descendants may be, I'm making an unconditional promise that you will forever to have a son to rule over my kingdom and rule before me. Look at verse 16. Your house, that means his descendants, and your kingdom shall endure before me how long? Forever. Your throne shall be established how long? Forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. So there you go. It's called the Davidic covenant. God's covenant promises to David. And it's how God is going to bring his kingdom from heaven onto earth. And he's going to do it through a son of David. Now, you can also go to Psalm 89. And we can't, if if, if you would look there, man, that's a beautiful psalm. I read it through it this week. Psalm 89 is simply the the, uh, the Davidic covenant put to music. And we're to rejoice in this covenant. We're to rejoice in these promises. There's a coming kingdom. And it's going to come and it's going to last forever. The Lord's covenant promises are so important that they're repeatedly referred to throughout the Bible. And you can just go down there and, and look at those. You want to do a great study this week on God's promises of Advent, of the coming of the kingdom. Then look through these verses. David repeats it at his death. Solomon repeats it in his prayer after he dedicates at the dedication of the temple. Uh, the chronicle in Second Chronicles twenty-one. It's really cool because David's sons. I mean, was David sinless? No. Okay. And his sons fared even worse. In fact, one of his one of his descendants was was so evil. He was just like one of the most evil of David's descendants. And when he died, here's what Second Chronicles says. Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David because of the covenant which he had made with David. And since he had promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. What you see throughout the Bible is God keeps his promises. That even when people fail, God is unconditionally promising. David, one of your descendants, is one day going to rule over all the earth. His kingdom will come. His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I promise to do that in spite of the sinfulness of your descendants. And you go on, this Psalm 132, they would sing about the the covenant with David as they journeyed to the temple, remembering God's promises to one day bring a kingdom. Well, you can go all the way down through there. Even the last book of the Bible, the last chapter in the last book of the Bible, in the last verses, Jesus himself mentions David and God's promises. Look at Revelation 22, or listen to it as I read it. Here's one of the last verses of the Bible. Of the, of the Bible. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. In other words, I'm the one. I'm the one that fulfills those promises. I am the son of David 
that was promised all, all, all along. And this is at the end of the book of Revelation that talks all about what? The coming of God's kingdom here on earth. And then a couple of verses, right? This is the next to the last verse of the Bible. Jesus says this to us. Yes, I am coming quickly. What, is, what does Advent mean? It means coming. This is all throughout the Bible. This is all throughout the Bible. So the question becomes, after that water uh, fire hose of uh, David's covenant that you're drinking, how will God's promise of an eternal Davidic kingdom ultimately be fulfilled? Well, that's what Psalm 132 answers for us. So look back at that psalm. Psalm 132 is going to give us the answer. Okay, how's God going to do this? I see he promised it. I know it's unconditional. I know Jesus is going to do it, but, but how is this going to happen? Well, Psalm 132 was written to answer that question. And it's the question that as the people journeyed to Jerusalem, they needed to be reflecting on. And so they wrote this song. This song was written, this, this song was sung so that they would reflect that God keeps his promises and how he's going to keep his promises. Now, whether you know it or not today, we should be asking this question. How is God going to bring his kingdom? How is God going to keep his promises to David? And you might be saying today, David, I didn't even know about him till today, and I'm still not sure what you're talking about. Well, I've tried to make the point this morning. You need to know about him. And you're not going to know about him unless you get in the book. But when you get in the book, you're going to find out about David. And it's going to make sense to you. But you got to put the pieces of the puzzle together. Do you realize this question? How will God's promise of an eternal Davidic kingdom be fulfilled? Is the question that's answered by Christmas. Do you realize most of the Christmas carols we sing? I'm not talking about, baby, it's cold outside. I'm talking about Christmas carols, okay? I'm talking about the hymns of the faith that celebrate Christmas. Now, they all answer this question. Think about the first Noel. Born is the king of Israel. What child is this? The king of kings salvation brings. Let loving hearts enthrone him. Angels we have heard on high says this. Come to Bethlehem and see him whose birth the angels sing. Come adore on bended knee. Christ the Lord, the newborn king. Think about heart the herald angels sing. Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies, with angelic hosts proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. And then joy to the world. <coughs> joy to the world is all about the coming of the king. Not the first time, but the second time. You know, we're singing joy to the world and we're thinking, yeah, baby manger. No, think of warrior, blood-stained robe, sword in hand, coming to fulfill God's promises to David. So it's all over Christmas. Now, how will God's promise of a future eternal Davidic kingdom be fulfilled? The answer is in Psalm 132. So let's take a look at this psalm and we'll kind of look at the structure of it a little bit and kind of look at some of the details. So we're going to do a little more history. Don't, don't die on me. Don't freak out on me. And then we'll come at the end. We'll do the application of it. So let's take a look at it. This psalm is divided into two parts. Verses 1 through 10 is a prayer, or it's a prayer referring to David's promise to the Lord. And then verses 11 through 18 is a response from God where he makes promises to David. And so, let's take a look at it. How will God's promise of a future eternal Davidic kingdom ultimately be fulfilled? Well, in verses 1 through 10, the answer is by the Lord's people being faithful to pray. So, circle that word pray. It's all about prayer. It's all about prayer. Verses 1 through 10 are simply a prayer. They're requesting the Lord to remember not God's promise to David, but David's promise to God. And let's read that so we can see what it is. So here, here's, here's what they're praying. Look at Psalm 132, verse 1. Remember, O Lord, on David's behalf, all his affliction, how he swore to the Lord, and how he vowed to the mighty one of J Jacob. Here's David's promise to the Lord. 
Surely I will not enter my house, nor lie on my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes, or slumber to my eyelids, until what? Until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrath, and we found it in the field of Jair. Let us go into his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, to your resting place, you in the ark of your strength. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your godly ones sing for joy. And you say, what in the world's going on there? Well, here's what's going on. The background is 2 Samuel 6. 2 Samuel 6. And when you go to 2 Samuel 6, and I kind of gave you that map to show it to you, it's all about David's passionate promise to find a dwelling place for God's presence. Because if you look on that map, actually you can bring that up. If you look on this map, this is the movement of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, you know the Ark of the Covenant, without getting into all the detail, represents the presence of God's glory with His people. So wherever that ark went, it represented God's glory and presence. And so it travels from Shiloh. It gets captured by the Philistines, and things don't go well for them, having God's glory in the midst of an unbelieving people. And finally, it gets recaptured, and Israel, the Israelites get it, and they bring it to this place, which I'm not going to bother to pronounce. And for 20 years, it's sitting here in a tent the tabernacle, a tent. In other words, it has no permanent place. And yet David, God established David in his royal house in Jerusalem. And David's like, God has set me up really good and his presence and glory is out here for 20 years camping in a tent. All right? David's passion was not for his benefit, but for God's glory. He's like, look, I don't want to hang out in my royal palace. I want for God's presence to dwell with God's people in God's place. And I just want to worship in his presence. And I want to lead my people to worship. That was David's passion. Are you with me? Now, you would think this is a little, you know, a little, uh, just a little jaunt to Jerusalem. But there were problems. In 2 Samuel 6... God had given specific instructions on how to carry the ark. And the Levitical priests were supposed to carry it. But David got the bright idea, like all of us do, I've got a better idea than God. And I think it could be more convenient if we put it on an ox cart. That way we can get it moved there efficiency. Us American Christians would like that. You know, in fact, I'm sure there was an American Christian that said, I'll buy the ox cart, right? Because this is all about efficiency. No, worship is about doing God's doing things God's way for His glory. So I don't know if you know the story, but they carry it on an ox cart. Ox cart tips, and one of the men grabs it to stabilize it, and he touches that which represents God's holiness. What do you think happened to him? He died. Boom. And David was afflicted in his heart. He was humbled, grieved. And they just kind of, the ark just kind of uh, stayed, uh, just kind of, they put it in some guy's field and they all kind of just chilled out for a while. And David was like, oh, he was so, he was so upset and he was so humbled. Well, eventually, God speaks to him through the prophet and says, look, it's okay, you just need to do it my way. And so they, they carry it by the Levitical priests and in, Saul, in uh, 2 Samuel 6, he brings it into Jerusalem in the famous story where he strips off his royal robes and he wears the linen undergarments of a priest, the linen clothing, which wasn't underwear, it wasn't indecent. He was just saying, look, I'm, stepping, I'm not acting here as a highfalutin king. I'm one of you. I just want to worship with God's people, in God's presence, in God's place. And they just, they rejoiced and they, and they had this glorious time. And so that's kind of what's going on in these verses 1 through 10. The people of Israel, as they travel to Jerusalem, they're singing about David's passion for God's presence to dwell with his people. They're remembering the reason there's a temple here is because we 
had a king whose passion and priority was for people to worship in God's presence, in God's place, in God's way, in a way that pleases God. And so as they sing this song, it's like they're reliving this journey. Okay? They're reliving, and and it's like they're reenacting it. So look again at Psalm 132 and see if I can give you this overview. It says, Remember, O Lord, on David's behalf, all his affliction. What's he talking about? He's talking about the suffering and the difficulty in accomplishing his passion. And he's saying, look, David struggled in this. How he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. Surely I will not enter this house. This is his passion. And so he makes this promise and he says, look, basically, now, of course, David slept. The point is, my, what I live for and what I long for is God's people gathered in God's presence, in God's place. And I'm just not going to rest until that's accomplished. That's his passion. And so he makes this promise. And then in verses 6 through 9, basically they're talking about, Hey, we found the ark and the people rejoiced and we brought the ark to Jerusalem And it says, Arise, O Lord, to your resting place, you in the ark of your strength. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness. Let your godly ones sing for joy. Basically, the Psalms of Ascent, they arrived. This is what we're supposed to be doing. Folks, this is what Christmas is supposed to be about. It's about His coming. It's about entering into His presence. It's about rejoicing. Look at verse 7. Let us go. Let us worship. Lord, Bring your presence. Be present among us. Do you understand? This is what we ought to be saying it every time we come to church. Lord, arise and be present among your people. It's what our praise music is about. It's what our praise team is dedicated to. It's what our preaching and teaching is about. And then verse 9 is basically, let's get this party started. So that's the first part. How is God going to fulfill it? As God's people pray for this to happen. Now, look at verses 11 through 18. The second part of the answer is by the Lord being faithful to fulfill the promise to David. So verses 1 through 10 are about David's promise to God. And verses 11 through 18 are about the Lord's promise to David. And the background is 2 Samuel 7. So really this psalm... All right, Otter. Really this psalm is all built around 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel whoops, 6 and 2 Samuel 7. And so in Psalm 132, you have verses 1 through 10, and then you have verses 11 through 18. So you say, why are you giving us all this back? Well, because if you don't understand the background, you don't understand the psalm. Got it? So go back, read this. I did this week. I loved it. It's unbelievable how this plays out. Because in verses 11 through 18, basically what you have is God's permanent or unconditional promise to provide David and his son an eternal kingdom. And so basically what you have in 11 through 18 is, again, the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7, put to song. So let's read those verses. The Lord has sworn to David. There's the promise idea. A truth from which he will not turn back. There's the unconditional nature. Of the fruit of your body, I will set upon your throne. If your sons will keep my covenant. There's the condition. They've got to be godly. They've got to be obedient. And my testimony, which I will teach them. Their sons shall also sit upon your throne forever. For the Lord has chosen Zion, Jerusalem. He has desired it for his habitation. His presence will dwell in His place. Verse 14, This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her needy with bread. Her priests also I will clothe with salvation. And her godly ones godly ones will sing aloud for joy. That's almost exactly what verse 9 said. There I will cause the horn of David. You say, what in the world? Was he a trumpet player, a sax player? No, horn represents the power to rule. 
It's the authority of a king. And he says, there I'm going to cause the authority, the power, the kingdom of David to spring forth. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed one. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but upon himself his crown shall shine. You see why I I sum this whole psalm up by one word, sovereignty. It's God's kingdom coming through David. And look at the whole pivot. Look at verses 10 and 11. The whole pivot of this song, of this song is in verses 10 and 11. He says, look at the prayer. The prayer is summarized in verse 10. For the sake of of David, your servant, do not turn away the face of your anointed. In other words, don't break your promises. Don't turn away. And then look at verse 11. The Lord has sworn to David a truth from which I will not turn back. So the prayer is, God, fulfill your promises. And the promise from God is what? I'll do it. I'll do it. Okay? You got that? So... How is this going to be fulfilled, and what does it mean to me? You're probably asking, so what? Well, here it is. Number one, here's the practical for you and me. By the way the kingdom is going to come, the way God's going to fulfill His promises to David is, number one, by God faithfully fulfilling His promises. God's going to do it. It begins with God. It begins with His sovereignty, His grace, His power. He's going to fulfill His promises to David through the advent of His greatest Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, basically, it's the coming of Christ that fulfills all these promises. So let's take a look at it. The Lord unconditionally repeats His promises in verses 11 through 18. And if you look at that, look at verses 11 18. Seven times He says, I will. I will, just like the, because he's repeating it. It's unconditional. I'll do this. God's going to keep his promises. But how's he going to do it? Look at the next point. The Lord has partially fulfilled his promises to David in the first coming. He's done it partially in the first coming. 2,000 years ago, Christmas, Advent. God began to fulfill those promises. Now, we can't go through all of this, but if you would study the life of Christ, he begins. The Christmas story is about God fulfilling his promises to David. When you look at his lineage in Luke and Matthew, those Christmas stories about David's lineage, the focus is on he's a son of David physically through Mary. He's a son of David legally through Joseph. It's all about being the son of David. His birth, his life, his death is that he is the son of David. Just look, turn to Luke 1 so you at least see part of this in your scriptures. Look at Luke 1. Probably the most famous story of Christ's birth. And yet I want you to see that his birth fulfilled the Davidic covenant. Look at Luke chapter 1 verses 31 through 33. The angel Gabriel comes to Mary and he says this, verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great. Remember God said, David, I'm going to make your name great. He will be great and he will be called son of the most high. Oh, okay. So he's son of God. He's deity. But notice, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Davidic covenant, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, Davidic covenant, and his kingdom will have no end. Throne, house, kingdom. Those are the same things we saw in 2 Samuel 7. Jesus is the son of David that's going to fulfill all these promises. We can just look at his life. Why was Jesus crucified? What was his sentence over the cross? What? King of the Jews. And the Jewish people said, no, say he claimed to be king. And the Roman pilot, the Roman governor said, no, what I have written will remain king of the Jews. See, he was fulfilling all these promises in his birth, his life, his death. And it doesn't stop there. 
Uh, He was mocked, cursed, crucified for being king of the Jews. His resurrection from the dead. As you look in the book of Acts, everything that Peter and Paul are preaching is, look, this is the son of David. He's risen from the dead and he's ascended to the right hand of the father and he's ruling at the right hand of his father. This is David the king. He has begun to reign. He has begun to reign. But that's only partially. God will completely fulfill his promises at the second coming. At the second coming. So Advent... There's two Advents we should celebrate at this time of year. The first is the first coming. Yes, God has begun to keep His promises, but there's a second coming. Because here's the reality. Here's the reality. Right now, the greatest, the sinless, the perfect son of David is seated at the right hand, but one day he's going to come to earth to sit on his own throne, the throne of David. And his faithful subjects will sit at his right hand to reign with him on earth, just as he's sitting right now at the Father's right hand to reign from heaven. So we live in this in-between time, right? So the king has come and he's reigning, but he's in heaven. And right now, if you haven't noticed for the last couple of months, it doesn't seem like Jesus is reigning here on earth. And there's a lot of people all been out of shape about that. And sadly, there's a lot of Christians beat out bit out of shape on that and it breaks my heart because they're missing the point we don't serve a president we don't depend on a president we don't depend on the supreme court we don't depend on political parties we don't we don't depend on our expectations getting met we don't depend on our desires being met you know what we depend on we've got a reigning king and he's coming again and when his kingdom come we don't need a a a vote recount When his kingdom comes, we're not going to need Supreme Court judges. When his kingdom comes, we don't need uh, twits and twitters and and whatever else. I'm going to get myself in trouble. (laughs) Twits, okay? Twits on Twitter. Because the king's going to come. And his kingdom will be forever. And we who believe in Jesus will reign with him. So all I want you to see is, you know how all this is going to come about? God's going to do it because God promised to do it and he's already begun to do it 2,000 years ago and it could be completed today or tomorrow or the next day. I don't know when, but I'm a Simeon. I'm an Anna. I'm going to hang on to those promises until they come. Amen? Folks, listen, if you're discouraged, defeated, if you got conflict in your life, if you got bitterness, if you got hurt, Give it to the one who reigns over all of it. Give it to the one who can redeem all of it and will one day make it all right. That's where our hope is. Amen? All right. So that's God's part. What's our part? Number two, how's this going to happen? By God's people faithfully praying for it to happen. God's people praying that this will happen. That's what verses 1 through 10 are about. God's people faithfully praying for the Lord to keep His promises to David to David and his greatest son, Jesus. That's what verses 1, 1 through 10 is the application. Verses 11 through 8 is what God's going to do. But listen, in verses 1 through 10, let me give you two points of application. Because here's the thing. Even though God's going to do it, He loves to do it through the prayers of His people. Are you with me? He loves to do it through the prayers of His people. So here's the two things to be doing. Be faithful in asking the Lord to remember his promises to David and to his greatest son, Jesus Christ, in order to fulfill them. Lord, remember that Davidic promise, 2 Samuel 7? I just want to remind you of that, and I'm just praying that you'll fulfill that through your son and David's son, Jesus Christ. Listen, you know how you know what David's passion was? It's It was seen in his prayer life. Let me ask you today, what are you praying about? If prayers reveal your passion, what do your prayers reveal that you're passionate about? Well, first of all, if you don't have any prayer life, that reveals a lot. 
If you do have a prayer life, let me ask you, what is it that you ask for first? What's at the top of your prayer list? What, whatever you're most passionate about is what you pray about. Amen? And you know what David was passionate about? God's presence dwelling with God's people in God's place. He was passionate about the fame of his name. He was passionate about God fulfilling his promises. You say, well, how do we do this? Well, Jesus told us. Pray then this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So let me just challenge you. First of all, do you have a prayer life? You know, I'm, and I'm not just talking, you know, when you're, you're, your gas tank's on E and you're like, God, help me get to the gas station. That's not a prayer life, okay? That's just, that's desperation. You know, lost people do that, okay? I'm talking about prayer life, habitual prayer. I want you to ask yourself, what's on the top of my prayer list? What do I pray about most? What am I most passionate about in my prayer life? And I want to challenge you to follow the example of David, follow the example of Jesus, and pray, Lord, your name be made more holy on this earth. Your kingdom come, your will. And God will use your prayers to bring about the second coming, to bring about the fulfillment of his kingdom. All right? But we need to do more than prayer. Look at the second point. Be faithful in acting on those promises. So it's one thing to remind God of His promises in prayer. It's another thing to live out our faith in God on a daily basis. So be faithful in acting on those promises on a regular basis in weekly worship and daily living. Why do I say that? Because verses 6 through 9, basically the people of Israel were reenacting David's journey of bringing the ark. And so in their worship, they were reenacting God's promises. So you say, how can we do that in the New Testament? Now, hang on to your hats here. There's two ways we reenact our faith in God's promises about the second advent of His Lord. One is weekly worship that climaxes in the Lord's Supper. See, just like these people said, hey, let's go worship in God's place, in God's presence, because we believe He's coming. And one day He's going to fulfill His kingdom promises. Well, guess what? As New Testament believers, you know where we gather on a weekly basis? Right here. We're a kingdom outpost. We're a bunch of people that believe there's a reigning king, and He's coming again. And you know how we testify of that? By coming to church. I'm just telling you, you know what? We live in a culture where Christians are abandoning corporate worship right and left. And people are justifying it. People are writing about it. Scholars are saying, yeah, this is good. And experts are telling all these things. Well, I'll tell you this. The Bible teaches that kingdom subjects gather in kingdom outposts to remember the king. And the Lord's Supper is how we do that. Remember Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And what did he say? I won't drink of the fruit of the vine again until I drink it new with you in the kingdom. So weekly worship in a kingdom outpost like this local church. And then secondly, daily living out what water baptism symbolizes. Walk in newness of life. Listen, in his first coming, Jesus Lived the life we couldn't live. He died the death we deserve. And he rose again. And guess what? We identify it with that through water baptism. But we get baptized to say, look, I'm going to walk like a kingdom citizen in this world. Everybody's going this way. I'm going this way. Because I know the king is coming back. And so we reen every time we just had baptism. And we were reenacting our faith in the promise of a coming kingdom. And every time we take communion, we reenact our faith in the coming kingdom. Look, there's good news this Christmas. God's going to completely fulfill His promises to David. So I ask you just a couple things. Number one, are you a subject of the coming king? As, have you surrendered your heart to the king? Are you born again? 
Secondly, will you faithfully ask him to fulfill his promises to David through his greatest son? Will you pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on a daily basis? Will you pray that? And then will you faithfully live as a subject of the coming king and joyfully gather in this kingdom outpost? So I know you're here. I'm preaching to the choir. I get that. But where were you last week? And where were you the week before that? And I'm not thinking of anybody, and I'm looking at Jim because I know he was here. So I'm not, this isn't about what I'm doing. This is about what you guys are doing. You know, what we do as a people. Where are you going to be next week? Where are you going to be the week? And I know we got vacation. I get all that. You know what I'm saying? I'm a kingdom citizen, and I'm going to gather in my kingdom outpost because someday the king is coming. And by gathering on a weekly basis and living it out during the week and inviting others to join in the coming kingdom. Because listen, it's not going to be... Look at the last part of this. He says, I will... Look at verse 18. His enemies I will clothe with shame. It's not going to be good for those who don't bend the knee. But by God's grace, I hope he's enabled all of you to do that. I know this was heavy. It freaked me out. Trying to teach it. But it's there. And God expects us to know it. Amen. So if you just, you said, I didn't grasp all that today. Did you grasp something? Did you, did any, is there anybody that didn't get anything today? Okay, if not, we'll have a private time. I'll help you with that. You got something. Take it with you. Amen. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for keeping your promises. We have no hope of salvation. We have no hope of the future. We don't have hope for the next moment if you don't keep your promises. And you're going to do it through a son of David, that greatest son, Jesus Christ. We give him glory. Lord, help me lead my family. Help the leaders of homes here. Help singles, couples, parents. Help us all to put you at the center of Christmas and realize that it's about your promises and it's about your coming kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.